Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Enough Wigger. Uh, we have a lovely guest with us today, Dr. Kate Brown, who is a cultural writer and essayist. Um, and you wrote this amazing book called The Golden Girls TV Milestone Series, which we love. <laughs> Thank Absolutely. you. What Lauren and I love about this particular piece of Golden Girls scholarship is that it is hyper accessible from a pop culture standpoint. Now, all of the scholars that we've talked to before have really amazing papers. And obviously what we're trying to do here at Enough Wicker is like break down all of those academic scholarly papers and say, no, they're actually things you can read, especially if you're a hyper fan of the show. But what the Golden Girls TV Milestone series uh, does is really, I mean, it's available in a lovely little chapbook format, <laughs> which you can find on our website after this uh, podcast. But also um, it's just, it flips through and it covers each of the four, you know, favorite ladies of ours in a really unique way. So without further ado, Dr. Kate Brown, I would love for you to introduce yourself. Hello, everybody. <laughs> I'm so glad to be here. Uh, I think the back of the bio, uh, back of the book bio sums it up pretty nicely. Um, pop culture writer and essayist. Um, I write and speak about body image and the media in all of its forms. Um, by day, I'm a professor and I teach digital writing. So anything having to do with people's stories represented on a screen uh, is something I'm really into. And um, it's just, it's been so fun. There was a, uh, it came on a listicle of like things to buy the TV fan and they described it as a slim tome, which I've always <laughs> wanted a book of mine to be uh, described that way. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, this, this book is part of the TV Milestone series, which if you're a TV fan in general, um, these books are really great because they, they cover um, a show in an easy to read format. You know, they're for fans and scholars, and that's a, an interesting sort of crossroads. Um, but being able to, I believe, hold the title of the person to have first written an academic book on the Golden Girls uh, is really special to me. And I'm yeah. really glad that it brought us together here. That's awesome. Exclusively on the Golden Girls, a slim tome for all slim tomes. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is fantastic. So, um, so you have a really interesting story of uh, how you sort of came to write this book as a scholar fan. I'd love to know how you sort of got into, uh, you know, becoming the first person to write an exclusive <laughs> book about the Golden Girls. Thank you for asking. I love telling the story. Uh, <laughs> In 2014, I was in grad school, and as grad students like to do, they go to conferences to share their work, and um, I was at the Pop Culture Association conference actually giving a paper about Dorothy, um, because my friend wanted to go to the conference, and I said, well, I don't have anything to write about. Let me just write something about the Golden Girls. My, my dissertation book, um, research was not on television really at all. This was just an opportunity to dig into something that I really loved and I hadn't read much about. And I was really inspired by that line where Sophia is um, telling Dorothy, uh, you, oh, shoot, now I can't remember. The thing is the backless one. Um, jealousy is a very ugly thing. That? <laughs> yeah, uh, je that's it. Jealousy is a very ugly thing, Dorothy. And so are you in anything backless. And I just thought that was so weird because I was studying at the time weight loss stories and how those get passed down from mothers to daughters and through different female fa family relationships. And mm -hmm. I thought, isn't that strange how often Sophia insults Dorothy's looks? Like that's mm -hmm. the first thing that she goes to. So that really started 
the path of, of Golden Girls as a site of inquiry, as the scholars say, um, into, you know, is there more to this show? So I gave the paper and I was down in the ballroom where they have all the books and I came across the TV Milestone series and at the, in the exhibition hall. And I said, oh, I'd love to buy the one you have on the Golden Girls, just assuming that they must have one. And the uh, acquisitions editor said, well, we, we don't have one. We didn't, they didn't have any on 90s, 80s, 90s sitcoms at the time. I was like, well, that's very strange. I said, well, what would you need to write one? Could I write it? And I was sort of half joking. And she said, no, I love, I love that show. And I'd love to get a proposal for it from you. So I went over from the conference, did the proposal, sent it in, got really excited about it, got a response back, said, we love what you've done, but we can't give you the contract until you finish your PhD. Well, I was about three years out from actually having my degree in hand. So this was pretty devastating news to me. <laughs> Mostly because a lot can happen in three years. What if someone else wrote right. my book? I right. would be devastated. So it's not I like they, to... they held it for you, right? They couldn't like exactly. Put it on my way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially if someone's right there, it was like, oh, I've got the manuscript. So I said, okay, well, I will, I will be here. Like you just wait. I'm going to come back and with this revised proposal. Well, 2017, I defended my dissertation on a Monday. I spent the week revising my proposal, sent it in at the end of the week. And that really started, you know, the, the publishing process, but it took a long time. And every time I would write my, sit down and write my dissertation, couldn't figure out what to say, got writer's block. I, was, I actually printed out the email that said, you know, apply, you know, re resubmit your proposal after your degree, because I said, I've got to get this so that I can write my book. That's my book. It's waiting for me. I have to go get it. And it was a real motivator to finish that process. That is that's, amazing. Um, yeah, that's so great. I feel like I've never heard of a better motivation to finish a PhD. Like three years out also is a long time. It's not like you were like right there. Well, and they were so they were like, well, you know, you may not you know, want to finish this project <laughs> after you've gotten it. Like, no, nope. I that's also incredible. Will. Like a week, I feel like after dissertation, everybody, you know, that I am personally friends with who is defended is like, I don't want to do anything academic for the lot. Like I need a break. And you just yeah. like were like, no, I must. And also like thank you for doing that because it was truly a public service to the community. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I feel the same way. <laughs> exactly. Um, do you want to give a little bit of, uh, you know, of your thoughts? I'd love to hear, you know, especially because this is such a passion project for you, like why, why you think, you know, well, one, why the world needed this book? Why, you know, it was, it was egregious that the TV Milestone series hadn't covered the Golden Girls before, <laughs> of course you did. But like, why, why does this show from the 80s, you know, resonate so well with, with people today? Well, that's the, the question of the series is what makes this a milestone, not just a popular show, a good show, you know, all the, the criteria we might use to judge a television program, but why is it a milestone? And the more I thought about what a milestone is, which is, you know, a, a mark in time, a, a unique event in time, the more I realized that it wasn't just a moment. Um, so many shows have a particular, I'm thinking all in the family, right? It's a sitcom that has a very specific place and time served a specific purpose for that audience and now when we look back on it as scholars we can say well this is what it did within the context of that time and space right golden girls it has continued to exist it has never been off of syndication right. even while it was still running and that's where i first saw it was in syndicate lifetime at four o'clock with my grandma <laughs> that's that's when we'd watch 
So I never saw an episode on its Saturday Night Run because I was too little <laughs> time. But that's just it. It's just been such a part of television watching culture. Mm-hmm. And it's it's at a really unique point of television culture because you have folks like my grandma who my grandma loved tv oh man that was her favorite thing so for her it was the network tv but for me we were starting to get into cable into syndication places where you could watch tv at a more flexible um period you know and not not just i have to tune in on saturday at at seven Mm o'clock so we're getting all these different shifts in tv watching habits which means that since we've never been without the Golden Girls, it has continued to evolve. Now it's on Hulu and, and we have binge watching and all these new vocabularies of fandom and TV watching that continue to make it relevant for new audiences. So that really became a key focus of why study this show. And a lot of um, television scholars and media scholars in general, um, they want a certain space time and space in between their subject because otherwise it's too new so I could see that being a criticism of my book is that I'm not actually studying something that's done we haven't had a lot of time to process life without the golden girls and I hope we never will but it's uh it's I don't know it's 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 like a milestone in progress it's it continues I mean even through things like Etsy or um you know, fan sites, you know, now it's not just TV where you can experience the Golden Girls. It's in so many different places. And I think that's really special. Well, as, as we've seen with the incredible, just, just Instagram alone as a Golden Girls fan community, um, yes. you know, people are memeing all these deep cuts every single day and it blows my mind, even though I know all of the jokes that they're even <laughs> like getting into more and more deep cuts and pulling different elements out of the show. It's great. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a period of time where I would have never thought that somebody would make a meme about like the water crisis in St. Olaf because nobody else in the world besides me would be able to like quick, you know, recall. Um, but it's just been amazing to see how many other people are so engrossed in the show. And like you said, like have probably lived all or most of their lives with access to like regularly viewing it. And it is such for so many people, I, it was it was fun because when I would tell people about the book, they, they would immediately tell me about a personal connection and not necessarily to them. Like some, a lot of people would say, well, I fall asleep watching it every night or something like that. Um, but it was more like, oh, I watched that with my mom. I watched that with my grandma. I, my 11 year old loved it. And we watched it together. Like there's a, there's an intergenerational connection that I think really it sticks with people. And I think that that was partly why I took the approach I did with the book and breaking down the characters against their archetypes because even it's just a part of cultural consciousness. And so people who may not be as deep in the fandom still can at least say, well, oh yeah, it's about three or four women from Miami and there's the slut and the the old lady and you know they've got this idea of what the show is right but I wanted to dig deeper and say is this what the show is actually about is there something else that it's saying that goes beyond you know the novelty of three unrelated and four total women (laughs) living together in Miami 
Right. And you, you talk about that too, of like the, some might say it's just sort of the saccharine sitcom because it follows the formula, right? But there's, there's so much more to it on the other end of things. And it can be both. It can be this like formulaic sitcom that's very traditionally funny and follows NBC's rules of the time <laughs> for the most part, but really just has this, these other huge implications, which I think is a, a great transition to your actual book. Um, so the Dorothy chapter is the first one. It's Queering Desire Through Performance and Performativity. The Blanche chapter is Uneasy Mother and Unruly Woman. The Rose chapter is Promise and Failure of the American Dream. And the Sophia chapter is A Trickster Using Storytelling for Good. So these are all such gems, but I'd, I'd love to uh, to chat about the uh, the Dorothy chapter first. Lauren, is there anything that you wanna sort of intro about the Dorothy chapter specifically? Well, I think that um, what grabbed my attention right away was, um, and you explain this in such um, easy to understand detail, but Dorothy sort of brings this like queer energy to the show because she refuses or she just doesn't perform, um, you know, her gender the way that society typically requires women to perform being a woman. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because you spoke about how um, on soap there was a lesbian character, but it was very much like the stereotypical lesbian. Um, and Dorothy kind of subverts that because she's not actually a lesbian. So I'd love to um, hear a little bit more about, you know, the the thought process behind recognizing that a character who is straight can sort of like queer up a show. Yeah, yeah, that's it's really interesting to me. I've always loved B. Arthur as an actor. She's just someone I've always gravitated to. It's like, you're a really interesting person. And thinking, you know, thinking about Dorothy, and that's why it starts the book with her chapter, because she does start the show. She is the first one walking through that door, right. setting up that conflict. And then she's the one that ends the show by getting married uh, to Uncle Lucas. So... <laughs> there's this this presence and this taking charge sort of attitude that she brings but the show is very careful and that's in some of the NBC notes is that we have to make sure this is very clearly a straight show uh homosocial maybe but not homosexual right so we have, there's a clear clear separation um and they they go out of their way I think to you know as much as they're making fun of Dorothy for being ugly or mannish she and she can't get a date you know but it's it's within the framework of this is what straight relationships are supposed to like this is what straight desire is supposed to be and she falls outside of those norms but still she's successful right her marriage is the only one that actually sticks and that that is fulfilling so it's it's just an interesting way to approach this character and b arthur was probably you know of of the because we can't really separate the content of the show from its production and what people, what the audience would know. That's why they had these um, big star actors because they knew that would, would draw in an audience. Right. And Susan Harris has said that the show was written around the character of Dorothy for B. Arthur. So mm -hmm. you've got the actor and, and her persona first as Maude um, on Maude, the TV show, but also in All in the Family. Mm -hmm. as a strong take charge kind of person so it's just I don't know I get all, I get all misty eye 
Dorothy, but the t- there's only two episodes in the whole show that, that deal directly with lesbians, right? There's a lot more uh, content about gay men than there, right. there are lesbians. Um, I always think of the scene where, um, I can't remember which episode it is, but when Blanche and Rose take the dirty dancing class <laughs> and... Yeah. You know, that's such an intimate sort of thing. And they're in their spandex and they're, they're going through the class and everything. And then Dorothy and Sophia walk in. And Sophia <laughs> says, you know, if I ever see you with your hand on roses behind, it'll kill me. So <laughs> reinforcing this, yep, we're just friends. There's nothing weird going on here at all. Um, it, it just sets up a really interesting dynamic between everybody, I think. Mm-hmm. I think it's fascinating because we, Lauren and I talk about Dorothy all the time, of course, Um, but especially just growing up, the influence of seeing a woman, and again, like you said, she was eviscerated numerous times by her own mother for not performing femininity in the way it's supposed to be, but that doesn't change the fact that Dorothy was her own woman. Like you said, she was romantically successful with a man at the end of the series. She has these moments, and you mentioned this in in her chapter of like, in Journey to to the Center of Attention, like she is able to attract men in a way that Blanche cannot. Um, and to, to me, like this, this younger woman who absolutely did not and did not want to perform femininity in the way that society was telling me to, but also, you know, later in life realizing I'm actually, I am actually a straight woman. Like, how does this, how does this compute? How can I attract a straight man while not being this way? And it was just, it was just so, it was so eye-opening to me as a younger viewer in the syndication of like, there isn't this, <laughs> there's not a gender binary that's enforced, right? You can be whatever kind of woman you want to be and still attract a partner, you know, in your own unique way. So I thought that was just like, it, I never thought of Dorothy as a queering character. And it's it's really fascinating because again, as, as we've talked about numerous times too, like just this show is so huge in the gay community for numer- numerous reasons. But like you said, even though there are only like two direct lesbian episodes, um there's there's just so much there yeah and the those episodes are I don't even think they're the most I mean they're good episodes uh isn't it romantic is the one with Dorothy's friend Jean and that's probably my favorite of the two lesbian episodes but um those aren't even the I don't the, the queerest of them all and I think you know, just to clarify for listeners, you know, queering in an academic sense is, is, is its, its own special entity. It's, it's a, basically a process of watching or reading or experiencing a piece of media in a way that, um, it, well, it's two things, I guess. It's the process of doing that, but in looking for those patterns that are against mainstream values and ideals, but right. it's also maybe go, what, and which is probably closer to what I've done, which is go back and pull out some of those themes that weren't necessarily um, present or available when the show was on the air. And it was a struggle when I was writing these chapters, um, especially Dorothy's though, when I talk about this so much, to both acknowledge, this is that that milestone part of the ongoing, it's the struggle, right? <laughs> so in the specific time and space of the Golden Girls on network television, there is no such thing as LGBTQ AI+. There's gay and there's lesbian. 
there is a binary. There, there, all we see are stereotypes. There aren't a lot of models for what gay and lesbian people look like on TV outside of those stereotypes. So in some ways, it's very hard to talk about now the lesbian episodes or the gay episodes <laughs> because we want we have this tendency to want to say, well, what are the queer representations? Where is queerness in the Golden mm-hmm. Girls? Well, there there isn't. There there's there are gay and lesbian issues, like, <laughs> and it's hard sometimes to reconcile. And I just try to remember that language changes the way we interpret pieces, changes over time, and there are some things about the way the Golden Girls handles what we now consider queer or LGBTQAI plus representation that are really problematic. And I mm-hmm. almost didn't want to say that word because the word itself <laughs> is problematic, but um, that make viewers today really uncomfortable, um, specifically the way that everybody talks about Phil and yep. the the man in a dress kind of jokes that come or when they, um, uh, the cross-dressing, when they dress up like golfers <laughs> to go meet Bob Hope, you know, right. but that's a joke. That's not something that's taken seriously. So to say that there is a queering happening, I, I, don't, I just don't want to get that confused with saying like, yep, this is a totally great, everybody loves it because it's so gay. It's like, no, nah, it's... Right, right. Yeah, it's pretty gay, but <laughs> there's there's other things happening here. And the reason I paired performance with performativity in this chapter is, you know, there's a performance that's a conscious, I'm going on stage, I'm doing this thing for the specific reason. And then there's a performativity that comes from being present in the world in a way where you acknowledge that people are looking at you, right? That there's a there's a different kind of presentation of self um, that that is malleable and I think that's where gender performativity really does its best sort of work is when we can say well you know why do I wear these clothes why do I walk this way who taught me how to do these things and make it a really self-reflective thing Uh, because we don't always know that the, the the forces of gender are acting upon us or that we're participating it in it in an active way so to put those things together where we're saying, all right, Dorothy is a performer. She is acting, but she's also acting when she is in a way. She's also being part of a performance when she, um, and, and now this just came up as you were talking about Dorothy, but you know, she doesn't really, she doesn't have a choice so much. She's not making a choice to go against gender norms. It mm-hmm. almost is framed as if she does not have a choice. Like just by virtue of her physicality mm-hmm. that, well, of course she can't wear the same kinds of clothes as Blanche and Rose do. And of course she's not as attractive and it's just sort of assumed. Um, I, I would imagine that if things were different, she probably would. She would want to conform in a more um, strict way, but I, that's how gender works right it's not so much about what you think about yourself it's what other people see in you right. and, and how that works together um so I just I just noticed that all of these moments where Dorothy is singing or where she's performing in some way like that's that's what's attractive to a lot of people that's where she gets a lot of her power and and sort of map that on performativity and gender it's like oh yeah there's there's a lot of power that comes in from not Go, doing everything that she's supposed to and sort of forging her own way in that and journey to the center of attention makes me cry every time because 
I am often Dorothy in those situations, like fight up against the blanches of the world. <laughs> oh man, when she drops the line, I mean, I literally sob every time I get choked up when she says, you know, Dorothy, are you ever jealous of me? And she says, every day of my life. Like that, oh. it slays me, it slays me. <laughs> to, uh, to, just to clarify too, when, when you're talking about, uh, you know, the dressing, <laughs> <laughs> the same as Blanche or whatnot. I just want to go out on the record that, you know, the, the dress looked better on Dorothy than it did on <laughs> I agree. <laughs> That's always been unfair. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, and they really, I'm thinking about Sophia. Um, <laughs> I've taken an 85-year-old, <laughs> the drag queen run, like, a 65-year-old drag queen. <laughs> Yeah, like Tony Del Vecchio, and <laughs> and that that hyper performance, which is now gone too far because of age, or it's you know it's not quite where that middle spot is of like okay, you can be attracted to men, but not too much because then you're a slut like Blanche, or you can appear youthful and you know dress in really flashy clothes, but not if you're Sophia. There's you know there's so, so many rules on this and that's where a lot of the comedy comes from is the incongruity of the mm -hmm. messages that we're told versus what we're seeing. And more and more, the overall, the messages are very mainstream, very network television telling us what is right or not. Um, and I think it's because of that overall conformity that it is able to make the moves that it does when it is subversive in a way that really matters because you know, they're, they're not probably not going to change anybody's hearts and minds about, you know, four lesbians living together, but at least <laughs> we've got these couple of moments where we're starting to move in, in a more progressive direction. Right. Well, speaking of being constrained by society's requirements of women, I think that's a good transition into the Blanche <laughs> chapter. Um, Blanche as an uneasy mother and as an unruly woman. And I, I found this chapter fascinating as I did for all of them, but specifically because Lauren uh, on our podcast really is almost like resident Blanche familial expert, or she's always just in tune with Blanche having sort of a disappointing family relationship in like every aspect, right? Like with it, you know, later in the show becomes even challenging with her dead husband, George, you know, due to infidelity, et cetera. But clearly with her father struggling with her mother, all sorts of crazy ass stories about, you know, her sisters, especially growing up and just her trying to find her place in that. So it's not unsurprising that it really stands out that she, you know, she's always been uneasy as a mother. And even, even in her revisiting what motherhood actually means as she's now an older woman, but even currently with her now adult children. So um, yeah, I just, I, I found this really fascinating and it makes me wonder of like, if Blanche Devereaux of, you know, the mid eighties, early nineties was, you know, born in a different time would it still be a struggle? I mean, it's still a struggle to, you know, to adhere to society's motherly expectations nowadays, but it has switched a little bit. So I'd just love to hear what you, you know, what you think about that. Yeah, I almost think it would be, it would be easier from the slut perspective to be, <laughs> you know, a little more modern, but almost harder from the mother side you know right. like uh when Sophia says we were at a time before bonding right like the, <laughs> the emotional before bonding and quality time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the emotional requirements of motherhood seem to be much more 
well performative you know you have to show you care you have to you have to do all these things and be involved in these ways which we can see in modern sitcoms now i'm thinking of like this is us where the mother relationship is very you know emotionally connected it's not so much as it was in the 70s and 80s of yep lock the kids out hope they come back at the end of the afternoon you know um so blanche being it's it's almost like how could she how could she have done any worse (laughs) but it's it just struck me as very funny that she cares or seems to care so deeply for the men she's involved with and is a caretaker and just in the metaphor of the home she's the one that provides the home that these women live in but she's emotionally detached from motherhood as as a part of her identity she has children she is a grandmother you know but all of those relationships are strained in such um they're almost it's the kind of southern family where nobody gets along really but the loyalty is so deep that that's kind of what it's it's striking me as but she when i think about um again the the archetype that come, kind of comes with the slut is virgin and whore it's either one or the other but men want both and it gets all complicated in that way and there's really you know virgin whore there's no place for the mother right. so that expanded version of the archetype of like virgin mother crone and so they've all supposedly all the characters would have to fit into one of these three um mm-hmm. you know if, if she's positioned as the mother she doesn't do a very good job of it <laughs> she's she's not nurturing she's not she always puts herself first she's just got this very strange relationship with motherhood in in every every stage of her children's lives you know and i called right. for the governess all the way up to <laughs> i only talk to janet on the phone once a year <laughs> and, and it, even it, in the, in the house know. metaphor you know even in the house metaphor of her housing everybody she doesn't she lets her uh, her own tenants do the plumbing work you know I mean, right <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, <laughs> yes and and it's maybe in some ways that's sort of inspiring that you know she is saying no I'm not a good mom <laughs> I love my kids I love my grandkids but I'm not going to be the mom like Rose who is so more emotionally in tune with her daughters and her kids and grandkids and you know really really I don't say cares but you know she she's detached and she's okay with that she's, she's like everybody's gonna go live their own lives I think her other which I haven't really thought about all that much even though I just watched the uh, episode with uh, is it Portrait of a Woman it's a Dixie Savannah what's her name when uh, Virginia writes the book about oh yes yeah Vixen Portrait Vixen. of I Vixen. Think of her name yeah <laughs> Portrait of a Woman yeah <laughs> and that too is I don't, I don't know if it's a you know it's just patterns repeating themselves over the generations but yeah she doesn't get along with her sisters her relationship with her father who she adores is strained and there's just not a lot of family so maybe all of these relationships with men are like surrogates for that close family um that she's had although you could could argue that even there you know she doesn't really have any did she 
I can't believe I'm asking this live <laughs> on our on our interview here, but <laughs> if I remember correctly, she does not have any kind of long term. She's been engaged a couple of times, Anytime. but she doesn't yeah. have the long term. There's no Miles. There's no Tony Del Vecchio. He was short. Not unless you count like Mel Bush. <laughs> But the, even that Mel Bushman, yeah. like, what do they decide? Like, you come over, we get takeout, watch TV, <laughs> yeah. go home. Like, out of Africa, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that that is, and she says that's a, that she wants their relationship to be just as it is because when they try to become more serious, it doesn't work for either of them. Um, right. And maybe maybe the power of Blanche's character is just the acceptance of this is how I like to live my life, and it doesn't matter if I don't fit in these these roles of good mother good partner good friend even (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah well honestly that's sort of why I like the Blanche character so much or why I think she's so important because I think it is um it's it's not uncommon to have like a strained relationship with the family that you're born into or not even have a strained relationship but just have found that you connect more to people that you've met along in your life like your friends or whatever it is um and I think that we get to see her sort of struggle with that like she often like she doesn't really care probably most days that she's not talking to Janet but like it's tough on Mother's Day or you know like sometime Mm -hmm. when like they're all especially when you live with three women who do have pretty good relationships with all of their kids I think it's interesting to see Blanche's like emotional response to that Um, and also I just love so much the part, um, in your book, when you talk about second motherhood, where, um, she says, like, I always thought this part of my life was supposed to be for me and like Mm -hmm. really pushes back on the idea that women should always be providing emotional labor because, you know, I think like that's still so relevant and to tie it to something very timely, like, you know, there's all of these numbers about how many women are now unemployed because of COVID and dealing with like childcare and things like that mm-hmm. and that is they're totally related and like nothing in some ways has changed but I just feel like the representation of the the or the people that Blanche represents and those relationships that Blanche represents aren't frequently featured on tv really even now and certainly almost never from like an older woman mm-hmm. And you're right, even even though, um, even, even with the the dating, right, and Tony Del Vecchio and all that stuff, where she even says something, you know, like, uh, you, the advice, you know, my advice works with the shallow guys I go out with. So, you know, it's different for you. It's the same idea where she's like, you don't see my kids visiting here. It's different for you. She's simultaneously acknowledging that, like, she does have those pain moments, but at the same time, her personality is such that she doesn't want to be a rose. You know, she doesn't want to be so involved like a Dorothy in so many ways she is in her life so it's it is really cool because she toes this line of like there is a pain there but also she's unwilling to compromise who she is and like decide that you know she (laughs) she is gonna you know pursue the path and make her own decisions on her own terms I'd also like to correct for the record real quick is that it's it's Vixen's story of a woman so I I know you know oh (laughs) not portrait and I should have said at the outset I am not the person you come to for your <laughs> trivia team. Like I am, I'm a big picture thinker. That's why I have this book, right? I, <laughs> I am not good with details. <laughs> so if anyone out there is listening, like she wrote a book and she doesn't understand like the title I think of, 
But I, you, you're, you know enough that you got confused because there is an episode title called Rose Portrait of a Woman where That's, she does the boudoir photos. Yes. So, it, so please do not, do not eviscerate yourself from this knowledge standpoint. <laughs> well, and that, you know, that, uh, that guilt, right? The, the, the guilt <laughs> is such for mothers, that's such a part of your identity as a mother, the mother that you should, you should always be carrying around this guilt. I didn't do enough. I didn't, I wasn't enough. I didn't right. care enough. I didn't whatever. And she refuses to, to carry that. She might have those moments of this is really painful and I wish things turned out differently, but right. I'm not going to define myself based on how I'm supposed to feel about trying to pass off my granddaughter as my daughter. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. In service to, to bagging a man. You know? God bless that Oreo. <laughs> little, little, little Oreo. Oreo. <laughs> um, I was bald at 23. <laughs> I do want to also talk about um, in the book you call out the Rebecca arc, like the three episodes of Rebecca. Um, yeah. And I would like to give some time to that because they're actually all three of them are really different and they really um, address like kind of big issues um, in their own way. So um, yeah, I mean, maybe if we just want to go each, the first one is when she um, it's called Blanche's little girl. And it's when she's with that horrible boyfriend, Jeremy. And that episode is like, I would say in my least, my like top five worst episodes, um, it's just, you know, so hard to watch. And there's, a couple of these actually throughout the series were like I think they could have they were almost there like you can see the potential that there could have been a better message you know throughout that episode um but obviously it goes off a little bit well that arc is so interesting because we've got a doubler situation (laughs) and I'm pretty sure everyone is familiar with the fact that they had it was like a double double you had some characters who were played by two different actors but then you had some (laughs) how does it go same character two different actors right same actor two different characters exactly and and (laughs) so that sort of complicates things because again we can't separate the content from the production entirely (laughs) but um and and my new hobby is like coming up with with fan theories about why the doublers <laughs> are who they are that's like a bonus episode or something <laughs> anyway um yeah so if we just let's like let's forget that rebecca's played by two different actors um and just think about that arc you know the in in blanche's little girl she comes in and has has gained weight right and and they make a very specific what i've always found interesting about this episode they make a very specific point to say she used to be a model like she wasn't just a regular person who had gained (laughs) weight like the stakes were high on this weight gain and what's her life gonna be now and i think the whole episode is totally undone because like oh well they came to her you know Blanche showed what a strong mother she was and she was going to defend her baby and she was going to you know come to her rescue and it's like no because you spent the whole episode talking about her weight and the fact that she was a model and what's her life going to be and the like the the anguish that Blanche has about this like yeah that, that let's just skip that part and go right to the part where you tell Jeremy to get out (laughs) and then let's take the rest of the episode from there I think that would have been okay Mm -hmm. and then to have her 
come back in that in that second uh, of the arc where she's going to be a single mom and going they're going to go to the sperm bank and the Laura <laughs> Ashley <laughs> showroom. <laughs> the idea of a bank having sperm. <laughs> sperm used to be free. It was all in. <laughs> Yeah, and that that it's so you know everybody's grossed out. Nobody likes it. Why are you doing that? Like she said, I didn't teach you to give it away for free or something. I don't know. <laughs> she said something about that. But the way she clings to this, not just so here you have a character who's supposed to be so proud of living their life, doing things on their own terms, not carrying any guilt or shame with it. But then you have her daughter who tells her she's gonna you know do this make this decision that she disagrees with fundamentally she doesn't just disagree with it like she tries to put that shame on Rebecca and Mm -hmm. you know why would you do this to me why can't you just wait until we you know until I'm dead to do this and until all my friends are dead (laughs) (laughs) it's a bigger ass than just her dying everybody's gonna be dead everybody (laughs) yeah that that there's still guilt and shame for other people's choices like that's going to reflect badly on her and then and then her relationship as a grandmother and even grandmas get the blues like she's and she's it's not her first time as a grandmother she has older grandchildren but there's there's something about Rebecca being a single mom and not wanting to get married and you know aside from the farce of meeting the dude and trying to do all that but just her attitude toward you know why can't you find a man why do you have to be a single mom I'm not telling people that that this is my daughter's you know who's a single mom this is her child um and it's and so I like that as as we think about Blanche as a mother and a grandmother it's also you see her values reflected in how she responds to her daughter and her granddaughter's grandchildren um in such an uh, interesting way there's so much of this going around these days it always has existed but the idea of being proud of yourself for making your own choices and then flipping right back around and not letting other people make their own choices when when they're not harming other people right i mean hyper relevant and just sort of our culture today and it's uh it is fascinating to to watch the blanche character because like as lauren said she's such an interesting character because she has all of these textures to her where you're just like why you know she's not perfect one way or another and she keeps making all these mistakes and one moment you can be on her side and say great for you for kicking Jeremy out and then literally in the same episode be like why are you such a bitch to your daughter you know (laughs) you're being abusive to her in a you know in a similar way so yeah it's just it's it's such a fascinating complexity right and she really cares about the way other people's decisions reflect her you know like like you were saying because it's sort of similar to what we were saying about Janet like she probably doesn't really talk to Rebecca that much like she doesn't have the right to insert herself when she makes this like big decision to have a child but it seems like she sort of just like forgets their history you know and and forgets that they're actually not that close that she should probably be directing her um and it's it's really interesting also to just think about her like her big objection to Rebecca um, having becoming a, a a mom through artificial insemination is like it's not natural or it's not um, 
you know, like it's not the way you're supposed to do it, quote unquote. Um, no but, fun trying. Right. And also, but it's just crazy because her whole life is not the way she's supposed to do it. So <laughs> it's actually quite hypocritical when, when we look at it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of hypocrisy. Yeah, wow. <laughs> I, got, I got all these transitions for you. Rose Nyland and the American Dream. I have not heard it put so succinctly you hit something in this rose chapter like just so on the head of like the rule following and this you know saccharine saint olifness and her naivete versus how dumb she is right or, or the growth opportunities there there's just there's so much to say about the rose island chapter so i really just um I'd love for you to chat about, you started off by actually talking again, not separating, you know, the, the actress from the actual role of like talking about Betty White, because Betty White is actually kind of the American dream, right? She is. She really is. <laughs> Get all dreamy face when I think about it. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a meme that, that goes around and says like, Betty White is older than sliced bread, and it's true, right? And I think that's the the, the number one thing to remember about her career is that she she came up in television and in media before these technologies even became a thing and I would never liken it to YouTube stars that's not what we're talking about here but there are some similarities of of you know she she got into acting and she started on radio started in the early days of television and then became a darling of the industry in the the 60s and 70s and by the time she gets to the Golden Girls, like has been on sitcoms and has been part of comedy and has maintained this sort of, um, it, it's an interesting good girl slash sort of mischievous sexy person persona yeah. throughout this time. And now she's this character who's just, you know, playing dumb. So everybody knows her as the Sue Ann Nivens and right. you know, for all her talk show and um uh, game show appearances and that sort of thing and then now she's here <laughs> and when you take a life that that spans that length of time during that period of American history to think about the changes that she had seen not just in the industry but in cultural and social life mm -hmm. I mean, it's just it's fascinating to me and so the the cohort of the golden girls so in in you know folks who are in middle age, middle life in the 80s were born in the kind of pre-post-war period they're called the silent generation and part of that is because they didn't have the accolades of the greatest generation in world war ii they're not coming they're they're a little pre before the boomers so they're kind of in the middle and what characterizes that cohort in history is that the message that they were sent was keep your head down, follow the rules, do what you're supposed to do, and later you will reap those rewards. So this is the generation where we're starting to see that get a job, work at it for 40 years, you'll get a pension, which we see playing out with Charlie, right? That he's going to, mm -hmm. you know, Rose has his pension and that's going to take care of her social security. All of these, so even marriage itself as, an, as a, a protective institution, that by being married, you'll have the social support, but then after your spouse dies, which 
it's always assumed that the man is going to die, um, mm-hmm. that the wife will be protected after. And at every single turn, Rose finds that this is not true. The right. things that she thought were going to protect her did not. Her husband dies. His pension runs out or he didn't have one. Um, the, the, the bad investments, which she didn't make, but is like trying to cover that up then for Kirsten. And um, even things like the social protections, like when she has to take the AIDS test in 72 hours, mm-hmm. that's a failure of the medical system to disclose information and to, she trusts her doctors to care for her in a way that won't compromise her future health. And it still, it feels like such a failure. And they, they, in that episode in particular, they make this very strong point of like, I did everything right. I'm a good right. person. And she and uh, Blanche have that conversation of like, this isn't a good person's disease, but it, or a bad person's disease, but it, it, it really highlights that that is the perspective that Rose is coming from. And she is the first one to, you know, the, the pilot episode, Blanche is going to marry Harry. <laughs> Harry? Who's Harry? That's Maybe probably my Harry. favorite yeah. therapy Ooh. line in the whole show. Who's Harry? The way that, um, the way that her lips <laughs> the best. So charming. Um, she, her first, it's not like, oh, congratulations, you know, you're getting married. It's like, where am I going to live? She's right. always concerned about housing insecurity. She has that monologue. We're going to be, I see that woman on the street and she's a yeah. bag lady and I'm afraid I'm going to be a bag lady. And it's, she actually says, is this some kind of test? Is that some kind of test? We're like, yeah, we don't go, you know, we get married, we have kids, or the kids leave and our husbands die. You know, even her monologue at the birthday when she's talking to Charlie about moving to Miami and selling the house because it's a good financial decision, not because it's, necess- you know, that's not necessarily right. what she wants to do, but you know it's and and this came about because i heard betty white on an interview say that she didn't think that rose was dumb she never thought she was dumb even though that's always how she's characterized in you know when you talk about the show it's like oh yeah that's the dumb one no she's naive she believes things that people tell her and she believes that they're acting in her best interest which Mm -hmm. why would she have any reason to not believe that you know government tells you something you believe the bank tells you something you believe them the hospital tells you something you believe them and she just keeps finding herself in the in these positions where these institutions have failed her yeah you talk about the rule following also um in the hot tub scenario when when blanche wants to install the hot tub rose is the one that insists on you know filing the permit which of course sets off the chain reaction that actually undermines her own security in that house and it's 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 really fascinating like to take the rule following and that belief and trust in the systems, right? I think even in the, you know, the Mario Lopez episode, she says you have to trust the, the legal system. And, you know, mm-hmm. she's constantly saying, you know, like she trusts that they're not gonna get robbed and that, you know, she had people to protect her. It, it, it comes up time and again. So it's just really fascinating how you laid it out there. And that that ties back, as you said, to Betty White saying, you know, it's naive of her and then you see the progression of this character in so many of these life instances, like get that reality check. And also through Blanche and Sophia and Dorothy who are much more realist and, you know, and have sort of street smarts, so to speak. <laughs> I think this is, for a lot of different reasons, this is probably my favorite chapter in the book. And the one that I hope will help people think a little bit differently about the Golden Girls now, but also, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're having a lot of, periods of distrust in in institutions that said they would protect us that have our best interests at heart and 
not really a cautionary tale, I think, but just maybe an understanding of, you know, people were explicitly taught to trust these systems. And now that we have a more questioning perspective or, you know, we don't just take, we don't have that naivete that, that the government and banks and hospitals and the law are going to protect us equally um, or at all, that we can kind of look back and so see those places where it's like, oh yeah, she trusted and was failed. She trusted and was failed again. And, you know, maybe it will help fans now think about whatever social situations we're in, in a new way that isn't, I mean, I had to really sit down and, and think about what are the patterns that keep coming up for Rose? Cause that was basically my methodology watch a bunch of golden girls and look for patterns <laughs> that was it and that's the one that kept coming up was because she's not really unique from Dorothy and Blanche or even Sophia in any other significant way except in this like fear and anxiety about her future mm -hmm. right. yeah that's that's really interesting and I think that she's also I feel like she wholeheartedly believes the American dream narrative, but she's also very invested in sort of not tarnishing the image of the whole, the American dream. And also I think directly Charlie, like the episode you talk about with Kirsten where, you know, they're going through the estate, blah, blah, blah. And like, it's revealed that Charlie actually wasn't very good at his job. And so they don't have any money. And it's interesting because like, when we talked about that episode, we, Sarah and I were like, yeah, he was a mid-level insurance salesman in the middle of Minnesota. Like, obviously, you guys weren't super rich, but <laughs> but Kirsten, in her mind, and probably largely because of Rose's narrative, thinks of Charlie as this very successful businessman, which is the only picture of what a, you know, like a Midwestern man. Right, like a, a an American is. Um, and so that's really interesting when you think about it in, like, the larger context of this idea of, like, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and you know all, all of that um yep. and and living beyond your actual means because of what it is supposed to mean to be the, the American that you're in a position of or like I just think about that famous temporarily embarrassed millionaires quote right of just like it's that's tied into the bootstraps of like you know there there is no you know middle class in America because everyone's just temporary temporarily embarrassed millionaires and just I, this idea of like I'm not at the social standing I'm actually in. I'm, I'm where I should be in my mind, I guess, you know, which of course causes all sorts of problems, which is the problem with the American dream is that it doesn't, it's a dream, right? It, it doesn't exist in this very particular way. And it's absolutely not true for everybody. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't cover the St. Olaf stories in any significant way, mostly because I thought it was too much low hanging fruit, but um, <laughs> There, there is something about, and I think that's why the Rose chapter butts up with the Sophia chapter about storytelling, because it is such a part of Rose's identity. And I think that that's, there's a danger when you, when you start doubting a story that you've been told, what do you have left? Yeah. You know, especially in this, you know, if the American dream was a thing you were supposed to have. And part of that narrative is, good boys and girls are successful right so if you're not then you didn't deserve it and now the whole story is skewed and and that can't happen so whatever she has to do to preserve 
the idealism and the idea that no 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 the story still works this is just one piece or this is just one moment in time or i'm one person the story still matters and it's still going to come true you know again with the the mario lopez like just trust the system and yeah telling everybody else to abide by the rules too like it did, and that's such a i think that's just part and parcel to this american dream story of like yeah it works for everybody except when it doesn't and then it's your fault right but you still have to defend the story because that's what's going to determine your success right and to your point, what do you have left if you don't have the story and you don't have that success that the story was supposed to bring? Mm-hmm. Damn, such a good chapter. I love it. <laughs> this whole, the whole scenario that we've just outlined that you outlined in this chapter, it also fits so well with when Rose quote unquote snaps, which is in competitive scenarios or in scenarios where she actually just can't take it anymore and she needs to regain control of like somebody else's, you know, like I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, oh, everybody shut the hell up, you know, when she's taking charge on the on deserted island or, you know, like when she just flips and, and it's really interesting because you can see it as that like regaining control of like, that, that's how she expresses it. She, she, the narrative yeah. has to go a certain way. It has to perform in the right wet manner and everybody else is this sort of liability. <laughs> I love Rose's competitiveness (laughs) I think that's just lovely well even I forgot that this was part of that chapter you know her her issues with substance abuse and and taking the pills like it's against the narrative of someone who's doing everything right like and she says my well my doctor prescribed these to me I've just been taking them for 30 years and say oh well maybe that's a problem oh no it's not a problem and then and then I'm not a bad person and there's an article um, that I that I referenced in the book that talks about the the uncanny valley and um, uh, and Rose's issues with with pills and the idea that she's she has has she been faking this whole time like is her personality fake or is this which I think again plays into that narrative of oh, this this happens to good people or bad people. Like, yep. well, if she's if she's no longer addicted to drugs, or if we don't see her acting in a certain way, that means that this must have happened or not happened. It's like, no, she could probably be both, <laughs> you know. But the idea <laughs> that I can't possibly be addicted to drugs because I'm a good person. Yeah. Like, mm, no, it's not about that so much, but. Just unlearning all sorts of American lessons. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> really. And like I said, I do hope it, it help, you know, could help people think about because we're still still dealing with drug addiction. We're still dra- dealing with HIV/AIDS. We're still dealing uh-huh. with financial crises and housing insecurity and racism and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, that that there is still some resonance. I was thinking the other day about uh, when. Sophia refuses to use the R mug for yeah. Rose because of, you know, possible infection. And then I, I wondered about, you know, with coronavirus, you know, are we seeing the same things of like, did you touch that? Were you near this? And, and how some of that is replaying in our, our fear of other people or our, our distrust of uh, not just situations and institutions, but individuals, which I right. think is really interesting. Well, yeah, we can, we can do a whole episode on erosion of trust related to coronavirus and institutions. <laughs> Woo, won't go there. So, so speaking of Sophia, so Sophia is our final chapter and she is the, the storyteller, right? Like, and obviously Rose's St. Olaf stories are, 
are a, a big deal and a huge part of her personality. But Sophia is portrayed as that mother character who tells those stories, who always has the nugget of wisdom hidden deep, 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 deep inside. <laughs> um, but she, you know, she's more, she's more than the quirky sort of like grandmother. You know, I, I love where you, you mentioned about how she often kicks off B plots that then sort of solve the main conflict. Yeah, yes. And Sophia is another character that I was like, I don't want to go the easy route. I don't want to just talk about how she's an old lady and how that, that affects you know ageism I you know there's got to be something underneath and when I thought about because Sophia and Rose both tell stories as part of their character but somehow Sophia's are different than Rose's and so what is the purpose of those stories and um you know I'll, I'll say right off that the the trickster character trickster archetype is a character that's used through a lot of different kinds of literature it's more closely associated with Black and Indigenous um, folk tales and folk traditions. Mm -hmm. So i i don't I don't want to confuse that with the the trickster character versus the trickster plot element. Mm -hmm. And I'm right. talking about the plot element here, like the the agent or entity that disrupts the main narrative for the purpose of teaching the main character a lesson. That's right. that's how yeah. I'm defining trickster. Um, <laughs> and and what, you know, what those B plots are all about. And I think the the most uh, exemplary episode that the describes what I'm talking about is the days and nights of Sophia Petrillo. Yeah. She's she's going through her day, but every situation she comes to, every person she meets or story, there's some sort of complication i love that one when she's in the grocery store and her friend is complaining about the lamb chop and she doesn't just go get a new lamb chop or something like she picks a fight with the grocery store clerk and yeah. manager to get what a 25 no cents no frill. <laughs> no frill. yeah it makes up this whole this whole thing and that you know that's a storytelling element that that really pushes that plot forward and and you know and so then you've got also the girls are at home and and this was a thing too that I had to figure out when you say the girls I think <laughs> as in ladies of the evening you're just talking about Dorothy Rose and Blanche but sometimes and they refer to each other that way so it gets a little confusing about who the girls are but um yeah the girls are at home talking about oh I wonder what Sophia's up to today they're feeling sorry for her they're supposed to clean the garage and they don't and that's the, the big comedy right. thing um but it happens in larger ways too like what is the what is the first conflict of the show it's Sophia showing up on the door right the home right so she's and she but she doesn't do any of the things she does for her own gain necessarily they are always to teach someone else a lesson to wrap up a story in a in a neat way or just <laughs> somehow provide a counterpoint or foil or juxtaposition that makes everything else make sense so is this is this something that she always does intentionally or always does unintentionally i mean what i i'm thinking of an intentional moment in the flu episode where she goes up and she accepts the award and she makes a very perfect guilty Catholic mother remark 
about how much she loves living with her, you know, her daughter and her two roommates who always get along. And it's so wonderful that you have people there for you. I mean, you know, she does it perfectly and obviously just she knows what she's doing and she's setting them back up to reconcile. So that that to me is like an active one. But so is it is it always intentional or can it be also just her being her? Yeah, I think it's I think it's both and I think it has to be because part of what makes everybody believe Sophia or you know when she starts out her story about Mama Celeste and the new <laughs> Picasso and all like we believe her because she that, that's part of what we believe about older people right is that they they're sort of innocuous and they don't really do things on purpose I mean they say that all the time especially in the, those early episodes like oh she's had a stroke she doesn't remember anything she doesn't know what she's saying mm-hmm. they sort of write it off as just being her but I think most of what she does is very intentional. And it's maybe it's maybe it is that that wisdom that she has that she can see two, three, four steps ahead and knows that if I do this, then they're gonna do this, and then this is how it's going to turn out. Um, right. there's just there's just so many moments like that. I can't I can't imagine. I made a claim that someone refuted me on the internet and I have to admit that they were right, but I claim that every <laughs> every episode starts out with someone coming into a room like they're never all four of them are together and someone said well they're all coming into the house during the break-in and they're they're all together at the beginning and I wanted to say and I'll just say it now I guess that (laughs) yes but they're coming from outside the home like there's already a narrative uh, break there in what it's supposed to do but yes factually it is not true what I said that every episode <laughs> starts with, with all four of them somewhere else Listen, anyway, if, if, um, Madonna, if a Madonna concert can't be a special consideration to this internet flamer <laughs> you know I don't, I don't know what what would be <laughs> so uh, you can't win them all I guess um, but it's the same sort of thing like the stories are set up intentionally by the writer so there is a sort of level of intentionality to everything that Sophia does but I think just as as a character as a as a person in this ecosystem you know she she has an idea of of how things are supposed to work out and I just love that you know she certainly has her own aims and goals and desires but it is more for the benefit of everybody around her even like in ladies of the evening it seems like it's all about her she's gonna go meet Burt Reynolds she's gonna do all this stuff (laughs) and is feeling excluded because she didn't get one of the tickets but you know what a motherly lesson of like leave your kids rotting in jail (laughs) (laughs) to teach them a lesson right she could have very easily okay get the tickets but you got to give me one because I saved you like it didn't have to work out that way but it did because they wouldn't have learned a lesson you know they wouldn't have gotten to that point of their own character development and I, I just think that's great yeah I I just to go back to days and nights of Sophia Pachillo for a minute I've never considered that as like one of my top episodes but I am really excited to revisit it because um another um scholarly expert that we've talked to Elliot Powell he referenced it too And um, in the particular context of your book, I thought it was interesting because it's sort of like almost an allegory for like how society views old people. Like, you know, I think the conversations are always sort of 
sympathetic or um, they're not really viewed as vibrant whole members of society. They're, they're usually, especially with women, I think viewed as grandmothers or weak or, you know, feeble. Even. Yeah. yeah. But it's so interesting to have that episode. Um, and I think the other two ep- or two of the other episodes that you reference in here kind of um, dispel that narrative too. And the one that I wanted to bring up is um, Not Another Monday, where her friend is considering killing herself and Sophia has to, you talk a lot about how she has to deal with like how she feels about this friend's decision, but ultimately decides to sort of accept it at least initially. Um, And that's just such a great picture of somebody struggling with something so heavy and so big but it's an old woman struggling with that and that's Mm. not something that I feel like we see even now in in media so much yeah that episode it was not one of my tops either but the more I watched it the more I I appreciated what was happening there and yeah it's this it's this big decision and it's two women you know talking pretty plainly about (laughs) aging and what it's like to uh live alone or feel like you're alone or you know just that sense of of an ending you know and wanting to take control of your life and the the story of that resolution where she she talks her down of like you know there's you know it's good and I'm just so touched when when Stelgetti starts tearing up you know at the end of that yes. that monologue about you know that the, there, there's more there's more to do there's more and that's not that's not for Sophia that's for Martha that's yes. that's to to change the path of her story uh and and the I love too it's just I don't know it's just a small thing I think but even when she invites her out to dinner and is like order whatever you want we've got wine we've got <laughs> there's there is that glimpse of the good life and you think that older people especially and, and it is it is sort of difficult to talk about age in the golden girls because they're all categorized as older oh, women right but you three women in midlife one who is older so a full generation older so it gets a little tricky but still that idea that you don't want good meals and wine and friendship anymore like that that part of your life has passed at some point and I think that that's what Martha is struggling with that Sophia can bring back to her yeah we are like yes of course Sophia is an example of how you can live a good life at 85 because we've been watching her all of these seasons doing what she wants going to work at the seafood shack (laughs) close friends family you know, bridge clubs mahjong she's got the whole thing she has the activities director <laughs> she, she's got it good and so she can impart that, a little bit of that to martha and really make a difference in her life yeah you can still drink hardy wall bangers even when you're 85 <laughs> right? no reefers though <laughs> <laughs> i love i also i also have like historically sort of avoided that episode just because of my own internal, you know, feelings of like old people, older people make me really depressed. And it makes me extra depressed when you see a depiction of an older person that says, I want to end my life. Right. But it's like revisiting that one, you know, more and more as I get older, it's like, it's, it's really beautiful. Like how, how Sophia turns it around. And it's, it's really, it's a really interesting um, moment there. And she, you know, she's being completely truthful when you get to see that, like, 
Sophia not being, I mean, and I'm using trickster in a different way here, but like not being a trickster, like not being sassy, sarcastic, anything like that, like really speaking from the heart is really fascinating. But, um, but the storytelling thing too reminds me of just like, you know, she has the, the, like the nuggets of wisdom of just telling the story. And like you said, like believing about these different things and having this whole long narrative. Like I thought of the, the, the Trudy McMahon episode where Dart thinks she's dead. And she, she's trying to convince her to go out and tell everybody. And she's talking about like Giuseppe Garibaldi and you know his wife Rosa hit her sexual peak. And she's like, Dorothy's like, what the fuck are you trying to say? We both throw bad parties. And she's like, no, in both instances, you're screwing around in the bedroom when there's things to do, important things to do outside. And she's just, Dorothy's just like, holy shit, that, that's right. I mean, it's like, it's, you know, it's such a perfect example of just, just like the, the, the textual narrative of a story like driving an action. I was gonna say Machiavelli, but that's not. With <laughs> like, I've got to. I'm on this quest. I got to find a priest, and I've got to do a favor for a, yeah. for a holy man, and all that. Like, oh look, a holy man in need of help. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I love that. I mean, even I know we've been talking about Tony Del Vecchio a lot, but like, even in that episode, there is this this sort of story like oh, this is what we're gonna do and this is what our life is gonna be like and this is how it's gonna go and tell them I faked it and like, <laughs> the storytelling and the the infer like it's almost it almost doesn't matter whether it's true or not and it doesn't matter whether we believe her or not it's yeah it's just the story is so a part of her identity and how she relates to people and maybe becomes a, a sort of proxy or a, a buffer between her and and real life you know with the mm. the fire you know and and that that two episodes to tell that story but right it it's it can be separated a little bit from what's actually happening that's what I put in everybody, every mother's uh, book that I sign. It's uh, if you want poetry, listen to Neil Diamond. If you want good <laughs> advice, listen to your mother. Like <laughs> episode two. That's a great inscription. So good. My favorite episode. <laughs> uh, and it, it just carries her through the whole series of like, yeah. I've got good, which does remind me of the Trudy McMahon episode where it's like, get out there go do like we're gonna go throw up we're gonna go throw rice at the kids get out there there's there's more to do yeah all right so let, let's talk about favorite episodes like other things like things that couldn't sort of fit into the sort of av- academic profile that we just talked about in your book which by the way yeah. you know again golden girls tv milestones by dr kate brown we will definitely make it available on our social media and enough wicker but you should go purchase a copy of the slim tome uh <laughs> But beyond the book, like what, you know, what else, what else is like burning in your mind that you want to talk about Golden Girls style? Oh, man. So <laughs> there, I always think about this as being a slim tome and all, no pun intended. Uh, didn't have any space to write about fat phobia or mm-hmm. issues of dieting or, or looks so much um, because they're all tied to diet culture in some way or another even Sophia and she's you know I haven't weighed over 99 pounds you know I've been 99 pounds ever since my (laughs) wedding day or something like that right you know there's and the the jokes the fat jokes that are ever present through the show and but you see them eating all the time which is not 
necessarily something that you would see in a lot of sitcoms especially you know women together and they're very open about their desires for food and their hunger and you know just eating as a as a communal activity and yet there's the jokes the constant dieting in the whole episode rice of spring which is actually one of my favorite episodes because i think <laughs> it's funny and I'm, I'm always a little embarrassed to admit that because of how much work i've done against narratives of weight loss but um, right. it's just it's just funny Yvonne, Yvonne. <laughs> oh my goodness and Woo, talk about this like <laughs> this is it <laughs> whirly bird <laughs> I, love, I love Rose's face when they do the windshield wipe so cute. Just like earnest I just can't her little gray sweatsuit because she won't buy the like I don't know Lululemon before Lululemon <laughs> branded outfits <laughs> fangly ones yeah which again you know it's like yeah rose is fine with her gray sweats and, and she's not going to give in to the, the spending more money narrative but yeah and they're you know the donaldson twins pool party and they're gonna diet and they're gonna they're gonna do all the slimming down and it's like even you know because there's this there's this weird as you get older the less sexy anyone expects you to be but still, at midlife, these women are expecting of themselves and each other that there is a threshold of thinness that they have to meet. And I, I just think that's, that to me seems like very much a network television, you should probably be talking about this kind of thing, or like, this is the kind of humor that our audience wants. Um, with the slim fast and sensible meal, right? That's, that's a joke that's a, a set of jokes that a mainstream audience who probably just got done watching a slim fast commercial will get and you know now looking back on those episodes again like we didn't have we didn't have a concept of of queering or lgbtqa as a as a framework we didn't have diet culture as a framework in the right. 80s either um and so it's thinking back on it now like, oh yeah that's that is that is not okay. And I think it's, it's something I'd like to write more about. I think, I think there's some space for that, especially with the Rebecca episode and, and yeah. the, oh, what's the guy who comes back and he's gained a bunch of weight? Ham? Ham Lushbow. Ham, Ham and potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I threw all so my good. memories away for a quickie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a lot of material to work there to work with there, no pun intended. Oh, <laughs> that ties to me like back to the the beginning of the conversation. We we're just talking about the the insults uh, that that are slung even from mother to daughter and all you know all of that kind of stuff. Um, that they're just it's very cruel um, and it's really it's really yeah. There's a there's a rich area to explore there <laughs> i haven't had this much off the spool since i measured the couch for slip covers <laughs> <laughs> and that's the like i feel like that's the thing about this show is like all of these jokes are terrible like you know like the message <laughs> yeah. behind them is awful but they're so fun like they're still when you take them out of the larger context of the you know fat phobia and diet culture and, and all of these things that are so prevalent everywhere and so problematic they're really funny lines I think um Sarah I can't remember when you recently brought this one up but Rose and Dorothy are talking and um 
I forget what Rose says, but Dorothy's response to her is, incidentally, you look fat. And that just, <laughs> yeah. that just shuts everything it was the, down. It was the same Frank episode we were talking about, Forgive Me Father, because she goes, maybe he just doesn't like her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's like, we literally talked about that episode and in my notes, I had, I wrote that down like verbatim to remember it. And I said, like parentheses, like, it's a horrible joke, but it's so fucking funny when it's delivered that way. And it's just, like you said, you're like, God damn it, Rites of Spring is my favorite, one of my favorite episodes. Right. It is really, it's very fascinating how well this show does things that are also bad. And there's very, very few instances where I absolutely do not laugh at something that's like a little you know like that little or a lot problematic I probably don't laugh at like any of Blanche's you know uh antebellum type of uh references but that's that's kind of about it you know um but no this is the the dieting issue thing was is definitely that should be your next uh tome for yeah sure. we'd love yeah. to yeah. <laughs> please <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah next project <laughs> yeah, and, I, and we were talking before about um, you really got me thinking about it's gonna have to be a whole slim series here, but like <laughs> the Stanley and his relationship with Dorothy and and mm. you know that that way that they are they are not connected somehow. And now that I'm thinking about it, why did he even have to come back at all, except for a you know comedy plot point? Um, but their relationship and the way that so the other three women's husbands have died but dorothy is divorced but she still is not stan is still around he still relies on her for support in so many different ways and then Mm -hmm. becomes sort of a a member of this extended family in some way and it it just it's making me wonder now like is there is there more to be written about um like relationships (laughs) just generally you know like what is the show saying about marriage and the, the values of marriage about casual relationships about family I mean that's those are such key themes but I certainly didn't have enough uh, space to write about them and I I think maybe even the you could do a whole book on marriage and friendship and chosen family and all kinds of different ways that this plays out and I think one of the your, your listeners are probably very familiar with this but the the thing that a lot of media coverage gets wrong about the golden girls is that they were not friends (laughs) you you know they were roommates who became friends Blanche put an ad in the paper she had roommates before this isn't this isn't the idyllic sort of commune living that we're hearing about now like oh we're just gonna get my friends together and go live like like a golden girl like yeah that's a cool idea but that's not that's when i get very pedantic about (laughs) the actual facts of the show like that is not what happened and the reason i get so upset about it is that i think it's really important to distinguish friends living together versus people coming together who needed roommates and who had some sort of housing insecurity or Mm -hmm. wanted some different way to live than you know, Blanche, I think, certainly could have just lived in the house, had all her men folk over, mm-hmm. call it a day. But she had different desires, one of which was to get more money and mm-hmm. knew that renting out the house would would drive that. And I think it's those little subtleties that get missed a little bit in the, the mainstream fandom mm-hmm. um, that make the show really special. 
And I know that it's hard to think about a show, one that's ongoing, but also, you know, the process of TV writing isn't, oh, we've got these characters, we're going to take them on a seven season arc. It's like week to week, episode to episode. And these patterns emerge, I don't want to say organically, because there there is character development and, and plots that happen. But, you know, the fact that we can make any kind of meaning out of the patterns of the show is really telling to me about the social and cultural state of the U.S. and how Mm -hmm. that is reflected on network television because the predictability makes the patterns, makes the story, makes how we live as viewers because we're learning how to be good citizens from television. Right. Wow. Yeah, Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's super profound. That's great. Yeah. And before we go, just because we did not talk about it, I just have to say that the the conversation between Jean and Rose in Isn't It Romantic is is probably the best model for me about how to have a compassionate conversation about boundaries and relationships that I have ever seen on television or otherwise. Like the bravery that Rose has to say, I have, or that the Jean has to say, I have these feelings for you and I hope that's okay. And Rose saying, I'm, I'd be flattered if I felt the same way, but I don't. So can we still be friends? And I hope, and it's the way she says it. I hope that can be enough. Like, yeah. it's not just a, it, it's like putting it back in Jean's court to say, is this enough? Not just saying, <laughs> this is what our relationship is going to be because I don't feel the same way about you. It's just a beautiful moment of television. And I'm so glad that it exists. <laughs> I, I, I love that. That ties back to the Rose isn't dumb, right? I mean, you can see, you can see her learning about that moment at the same time as she's saying, she's saying it out loud. Like you see her, you know, Betty White plays it so well that she's thinking, you know, she's like, I I don't understand these feelings, but if I did, and you know, she's just literally having like the inner monologue of how she's just being I, she's like, this is new. <laughs> this is new to me. Yeah. But she can imprint it on her own life experiences to create that growth. And like you said, and she's, you know, she's just so respectful of Jean and she doesn't approach the new situation with fear that turns into something negative or something that's, like you said, cutting off any sort of back and forth. I think that was a very important moment for a lot of viewers to see yeah. in terms of representation of gay and particularly lesbian characters on tv yeah i mean that's exactly what i was gonna say is i think that um i am sure the first couple times probably honestly the first 10 times i saw that episode i didn't realize that i was gay and i think that sexual orientation is so it's present but it's kind of so irrelevant in that conversation because it's it's just about acknowledging the feelings and voicing the fact that you don't have the same but like you said, hopefully that's enough. Um, So yeah, that's a a wonderful scene. But I I did want to just ask one sort of final question about the book. And I wanted to know, how did your relationship to the show change while writing the book? And is there anything, what were the big sort of takeaways for you? Ooh, that's a great question. Mm -hmm. I don't, one of my fears was that I would watch it and I would have to watch it so much that I wouldn't like it anymore that it would just be like oh yeah that's a thing I did and it's fine I hate it nope I love it probably even more than I did before it's been such a a show to cling to in these pandemic times Mm -hmm. and it it my memories of it 
are so much more meaningful because it was um, the book is dedicated to my grandma because you know loved her a whole lot and we we watched the show together a lot and she's the one who when um, I was first in grad school getting my master's said you know you should write a book on the golden girls (laughs) and I was like okay sure (laughs) why not and she's like I think because because I was laughing so much while we were watching it and she said you just have such a fun time writing it and I think you should write that book and I was like okay and you know (laughs) seven years later I was talking to someone at a conference about it and it was never something that I really thought I would do it was just a nice idea and I liked that she thought that I would want to have fun while I write like that that yeah. really meant a lot to me um and it's it, it's so intertwined like my grandma died like two weeks after B. Arthur and my my best friend is getting very personal my best friend and I who is mentioned in the acknowledgments of the book um, she has a Golden Girls tattoo. She's the one you want on the trivia team, not me. Like she knows all the quotes, all the characters. She she reminds me who Fritch Stickelmeyer is all the time. <laughs> She's the one. We we were in um, Atlanta for my bachelorette party, which was a Golden Girls themed bachelorette oh. party. Amazing. And B. Arthur died that weekend. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And I was, you know, and my grandma was sick. And, and so I, we heard the news about B and we're, like, crying together. And, and I said, this isn't, a, this isn't really about B. And she's like, yeah, I, I know it is. <laughs> just so all of these memories kept coming up, not just the show, but, you know, what it means to me, what it means to be a fan, what it means to you know, have the kind of, and, and a lot of it is, it, writing this book was in a lot of ways an act of, of love because I think all writers write gifts. They just want to give back in some way. Mm-hmm. And this was a gift to all the people in my life who um, put me on this path, you know, encouraged my writing, encouraged my interest in TV and made it possible for me to look at this show in a way that might be useful to other people too. And, and that's the gift that I want to give all the fans is, you know, take, take 80 pages, read a little bit more about your favorite show. And then maybe that will deepen your connection to it and, and share that love with others. Oh yes, absolutely. And I, I think Lauren, I speak for you that I agree that no matter how scholarly or intimate or like detail oriented you get about watching the show in an academic or quote unquote work sense that you still love it on the other end, if not more, as you said. So yeah. yeah. Thank you, Kate. It's... That was, that is awesome. So everybody buy Kate's book. Awesome. Seriously. It is a little <laughs> gift, like she said, to all of us here who are in love with this television show and want to learn and explore more. Yeah, and it's probably the only Golden Girls theme merchandise that your friend doesn't have. So <laughs> there you go. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on today. I've had a lovely time. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, thank you for being a friend, as is customary. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, Kate Brown, the TV Milestones series, The Golden Girls. Take care, everybody.